Well, Patty, I really enjoyed our uh, podcast interview today with Scott Adams. Uh, he is always a fantastic interviewee. Lots of lots of grist uh, for the mill. A lot of uh, stuff we need to really come to terms with. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Actually, I feel like uh, I always enjoy the episodes where I learn something, and I definitely feel like mm-hmm. I learned a few things today about chargebacks I didn't know. And this new uh, new idea of literally like stopping a chargeback before it even becomes a chargeback. Yeah, exactly. Really, I, I think it's a, it's a great innovation by Visa. Thought that was really cool. Then in questions from the field today, I talked about. Um, you know, this race to vertical specific SaaS and this idea of kind of, you know, we think about payment processing and the different races to card acceptance or EMV acceptance or whatever, and or dual pricing or whatever. And there's this other race right now that's going on that I think our industry needs to wake up to um, that's going to really change the whole marketplace. And then tell us about the insider's report, Patty. Oh, I just follow on um, our discussion with Scott and talk about a particular case involving a chargeback company that uh, seems to be running um Running a foul of regulators, shall we say? Yeah, and actually, the uh, the accused is a previous uh, interviewee. So yes, it uh, is. That adds yes, a little more is. context to it. Uh, also, I'd like to mention that in this episode, we interview Scott Adams, uh, his company Fraud Deflect, his other company CMP Mentors. Uh, none of these companies uh, are paid sponsors. Uh, they're not active consulting clients of mine, and we receive no compensation or are we promoting them for any paid reasons. We just think it's a really interesting interview and we're excited to share it with you. So with that being said, let's dive into today's interview. Let's do it. Welcome to the Merchant Sales Podcast. Hey, everybody. Pat and I are here today with Scott Adams, who is the CEO at Fraud Deflect. How are you doing today, Scott? I'm doing great. How are you? Doing fantastic. So uh, we had talked before about some other things that you were doing in kind of the card not present world and all that. Talk, Give us a little bit of a context of what you've been up to since then and this new company, Fraud Deflect, that you've been working on. Uh, sure. Thanks. So really, since we last talked, a lot of things have happened in the industry, really. I'm not sure what you guys follow in the space, since I know you're less around the high risk type of things, but this actually affects pretty much everybody in the payment processing world. Um, you know, the FTC has cracked down on some companies around representment and, you know, these kind of activities, which, you know, representments are great and you're supposed to do, it, but you have to tell the truth and you have to provide information that actually was provided to the customer during the process. And, you know, so that, that's one thing that happened. And then also April, I think it was 16th, Visa launched a new program called Visa Compelling Evidence 3. And this program is, is really cool. And I think it's game changing for tons of merchants in that in a real time process, you can actually collaborate with the issuer and kind of represent to that point. So like whenever a consumer calls their issuer and says, hey, I want to charge back or, you know, this wasn't me or whatever they say, then in real time, Visa will ping either a service provider or the merchant to get more information on a transaction. And if they had that information, and Visa deems the the uh, dispute as something that could work for compelling evidence three, which basically means is it a a ten dot four that's you know a fraud, so more or less friendly fraud transaction, and has that merchant processed transactions of the same type with the same consumer before, then they'll ping you again for a few more data points around a few more transactions, and they'll actually outright block the chargeback. And there's no fee. I mean, sorry, there is a fee, but there's there's no refund. So this isn't the alerts that are out there. So there's no refund. So that's huge. And that changes the game for many merchants. Yeah. Um, and then finally, you know, it's a lot of information, but finally, 
there's actually been some changes that are coming now and it's actually starting to take effect with the visa monitoring programs. So depending on your category code, they're actually going to be lowering the thresholds. And so this kind of all comes together. And I said, you know what, we need to do something about this. Um, and had some merchants and partners ask me if I was going to. And so we were launching Fraud Deflect to basically do the same type of thing. So, you know, we'll have alerts just like, you know, some others, but we're also just got accepted into the beta program for CE3. So we'll be able to provide the service for merchants um, and then also do representment alerts. And we're going to soon also have some friendly fraud prevention up front pre-transaction. A lot of a lot of things have happened. Yeah, a lot of stuff happening there, Scott. And actually, you touched on a whole lot of topics that I wanted to touch on. Um, but let's like back up a little bit because I'm not sure that everybody who's listening or watching today has a keen understanding of chargebacks. You know, could you maybe take a minute or two to explain chargebacks or visa calls that I think disputes, right? Um, how they occur, the responsibilities of various parties. And of course, um, you mentioned it, the so-called friendly fraud. Sure. So yeah, that's also a lot of information. Um, but yeah. yeah, let's start just with what a chargeback is. So, you know, I think many people in the, in the industry, even in the world, don't understand that. And Or like you said, a dispute basically are the same thing. And how, they, how these happen is that let's say that a consumer, um, you know, so the, the cardholder gets their credit card statement or maybe your high tech and you get the text messages or push alerts to your phone that say a charge happened. And you look at it and you don't recognize it. So in that case, you need to actually contact your credit card issuer. Um, you, know, you might call your credit card company as a consumer, you know, like Citibank or somebody. And so you call that number on the back, the card, and you say, hey, I don't know what this charge is. And that at that point, it could become a chargeback. And so the issuer generally will discuss it with you. They'll look it up and they'll see you know, like the descriptor, which oftentimes that descriptor is not very meaningful. Depends on how you set it up, but many times that might be a company name. But like I always give the example, a lot of times that name doesn't mean anything to the cardholder. Right. Because, you know, maybe it's a corporate LLC or something, mm -hmm. but the product you bought has nothing to do with that name. Right. So that can be confusing. But so at that point, though, if the consumer says, no, I didn't make that charge, then the issuer can press the chargeback button. And that becomes a chargeback. And what, what happens then, though, and this is where it gets really bad, is that, you know, it flows down the pipe to the merchant. And they immediately take the money away from the merchant. Mm -hmm. And generally, there's also a charge on top of that from the acquirer, processor, ISO, whatever uh, parties are involved, maybe multiple charges. Um, and then a lot of times it ends there. But what we need to do, you know, the merchant, though, does have some recourse. The merchant can represent that, which is where they present additional evidence. Um, and then if they win it, they get their money back, but it still counts against them right. as far as their chargeback rates go. Right, right. Yeah, and that's where, you know, the, as far as, you know, like what the different parties involved in responsibilities, you know, the, it's really, unfortunately, it all falls into the merchant in that if the merchant does not contest it, meaning represent it, and, and they if they don't, the loss, right? yeah, they eat the loss and nobody knows anything. Right. You know, so there are certain cases where the chargeback actually is on the is on the issuer, mm -hmm. um, but most card not present merchants don't use these services. And in the United States, it's there's not a lot of acceptance of the services. So things like um, you know chip and pin for 
in-person situations where like we don't use the pen. Americans don't like that. Right, right. <laughs> um, and you can do three secure, which is sort of like that, but that requires, again, basically a pen. And Americans aren't good about entering those. So we don't tend to use them online in, in the States. It's right. very popular in Europe. Um, but but yeah, so that, that's kind of how Chargebacks works. You know, how I see it, generally very unfair to merchants. Yeah, and, yeah. I mean, I've, I've always felt that way myself. And it also seems kind of the rules kind of become oh, yeah. so arcane sometimes. I mean. Have you tried to read them? I have. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's not fun. It's not fun. And it's really confusing. It really like, is. I, I, have, and, I have a client in, in Honduras that... Uh, but it was he was getting chargebacks like almost a year old transactions. And I told him I'm 99% sure that's not okay. You know, it's supposed to be 180 days. Um, you know, so I dug through the rules to make sure because it's Honduras. I hadn't dealt with them before. Right. Um, and and I was right. And then I actually asked MasterCard about it, somebody over there, and they they agreed with me. But but they but they they also sent me to the rules. And you know, there's so many ways that like in certain situations, it can't actually be longer. Um, but yeah, they're so confusing. No merchant ever reads them. No. And generally, when you, we give a merchant a merchant account, we don't tell them anything. Nothing about just, that. Here, sign this thing. We'll let you process. Right, right. right. It's like a mortgage. Oh, then all of a sudden, this thing comes back and it's like, what is this? Why am I being yep. charged for this? Yeah. And that's why you know, I've spent a lot of my career ever since I first got in trouble with chargebacks trying to help merchants figure it out. You know, and you've got to stay up to date. You've got to stay connected to the right people, the right groups. Um, and if you don't, you don't have the information. At least it's not up to date. Well, let's let's you you mentioned briefly um, about the new visa rules, and as I understand it, they made this rule change that's supposed to um, primarily address friendly fraud, um, and it's called CE three Yep. Now, what I'd love for you to explain to our audience is the background, who does what, you know, when it took effect, which I think you mentioned, but just to reiterate. And also, most importantly, what does CE3.0 stand for? Sure. Well, let, let's start there. So CE3 stands for compelling evidence. And, you know, okay. it's a, a third or maybe more than that version, but they're calling it three. Um, okay. the, the big difference is is that, you know, so compelling evidence, if, if you've ever done a representment, that's the data that you provide to your acquirer as a merchant to say, this chargeback is not legitimate. I delivered this product. This consumer knew they were buying this product. It was that consumer. Um, you know, so you can provide that evidence. And there used to be some general guidelines, mm -hmm. but there wasn't a cut and dry. If you do this, you will win. And that's what CE3 is all about. And it's also in a way it's it's meant to like if you go back a little ways, go to like say, you know, four or five years ago, Visa brought out kind of their first predecessor to this, which was BMPI. Okay. Um, and that was Visa Merchant Purchase Inquiry. Right. And that's what actually one of my the last business I had um, that I uh, exited back with uh, with Count and Equifax was a company built around that. Like I was in there kind of beta. I built the merchant interface to that mm -hmm. for a lot of merchants. And it was a great product. But the problem was, again, so there was no cut and dry rule. And two, it was hard because you had to have a lot of data. You had to respond really fast. And that actually still holds true, true today. 
But what a lot of merchants had the biggest problem with was that there was no way to know. Like, you know, if you call your credit card company, are you going to do a chargeback? Or are you just calling to ask? Right. Ask a question. But I would get the ping either way. So I had to charge for it because I was being charged. Mm, so, right. but there's no way to for sure know that was going to be a chargeback. Right. And so what CE3 does is it solves two of those problems. So you still have to have a lot of data. You still have to be very fast. Um, and my company, FraudFlex, solves for that. The, the other two pieces, though, the fact that there's no kind of cut and dry rule, you win if, that's changed. So now, and like you said, it's about friendly fraud. So now if you provide the, get to provide a, um, an IP address, or a device ID or a device fingerprint for the for the transaction that, that they send in initially, which is the one they're trying to dispute. Mm -hmm. And then you have to send some other basic information, you know, matching information, like you've got a match on the ARN or auth code or some other fuzzy logic. But then if you have that data and like the consumer, you know, the name, um, also like an account ID, like email or something. And then you send that to them. And then if it's a 10.4, so basically friendly fraud, then they're going to ping back again. And they're going to say, hey, give me information that matches, hopefully, on transactions that are more than 120 days old and less than a year old and have not had a fraud dispute. So it could be like merchandise. On this matching. account. On this account. with you know, So this merchant account. Right. This credit card. Right. Meaning, meaning this so, customer bought from you before and they did not dispute that transaction. Right. Exactly. And so then, and, and if this is recurring, and this is a big, a huge piece, I think, if it's recurring, you can take that same, those same data points from the initial consumer initiated transaction. Right. So maybe they're charging back, char, you know, month 10 of a, of a recurring transaction. But you don't have IP on that, of course, because the, the consumer didn't interact. But, but you can go back and grab that same the IP address or device ID from the transaction the merchant or the consumer did initiate when they started the, the subscription. Uh -huh. You can pass that in. And so as long as these data points all match, then Visa will actually jump in and say, hey, Isher, this is not a valid chargeback. You may not do this. And then so there's a small fee there, but there's no refund. It does not count against you as a chargeback in your chargeback rates. Mm. So that's that's big because you know yeah, the, really the problem with with alerts, right? Other products you got to do a refund, and so if you're you know legitimate merchant and you're not having you're not in big chargeback trouble, you probably just want to let it go to represent, but then you got to win that, you know. Or but in this case, this is basically how I look at it. This is real time representment pre chargeback, which means it doesn't count against you. Whereas, you know, one of the, the stupid rules that the car brands have are if you represent and win, it still counts. Mm -hmm. you know, it shouldn't, but mm. that's how it is. We don't have a choice on that. So, so CE kind of takes fixes those problems. So um, the and, compelling yeah. in the compelling evidence is things like the same IP address being, you know, accessing the same card for the same product over a period of six months. That's what you're talking about there. Yep. And what you're also saying is that if you're able to, you know, to respond to these queries, you're not racking up um, disputes that can count against you. Correct. Yeah. Wait, so there's we, no no chargeback. Go ahead. 
Well, I was going to say, when you say count against you, for those who don't understand, maybe explain that a little bit more of this idea of like how you can only have so yeah. many chargebacks. Sure, sure. Yeah. So one of the, the big rules in merchant processing, and I just kind of call this like a hidden rule mm-hmm. because I, I sure didn't know about it when I was starting out. I didn't know about it until a bank called me and said, well, we're going to hold them up to your money and shut your account down right. and had no notice. Right. And that still happens today. I have plenty of clients that that happens to um, or has just happened to. And then I help them get out of the problem. Um, so w- what the situation is, is that so one, there's kind of a hard and fast rule that your chargeback ratio. So the number of chargebacks, and this is important, the math here, the number of chargebacks that come in in this month divided by the transactions that come in in this month. So if you understand the merchant world very well, you understand how this is kind of problematic, but that's the rule. So if that's over 0.9, then you can be be put into the the Visa chargeback monitoring program, or I think they call it actually dispute monitoring program now. Um, Additionally, if your transactions that are flagged for fraud, not necessarily a chargeback though, uh, if that one, if that ratio gets over 0.9, you can be placed in their fraud monitoring program. Um, And that one, annoyingly, it's the same math, except it's by dollar amount in USD. It doesn't really matter what the conversion is. But so we always one, figure in one a USD. Big chargeback is a big problem. Exactly. And so that those two programs are super important and merchants get in trouble all the time. And and it's always been weird is if I win a representment, why does that count against me in these programs? Yeah. But it does. With CE3, it does not count against you. Right. So that's one of the really big differences from the legacy requirements, right? Mm-hmm. And the fact that you can present more evidence earlier in the process. Yeah. And there is a rule because it used to be it was totally up to the issuer. Now it's if if you meet these criteria, it's up to Visa and it's automatic. And it, and this just to be clear, you can do this in representment too. But then it still counts against you. So it will be an automatic win whenever your acquirer puts the data into B-roll. But it still counts against you, unfortunately. And so so, so you you consider how much it costs. You know, I'm sorry. I was just going to say, to clarify that, what you mean is, as a merchant, if you go through one of the legacy programs with the same data that you would do with CE3, you would potentially win the chargeback, meaning you wouldn't have to, you know, refund all this money to the merchant. But that chargeback still counts against your like staying below 1% of transactions, whether it's number of transactions or volume to where you can start getting your account either shut down or monitored or all these other issues. Right. Yep. Exactly. Exactly. And so, you know, so it's, how I see it, it just, it changes the game for a lot of merchants. Um, And then like I said, the other rule that's changing is for certain MCC codes, the, I I know the fraud program is going to go down to 0.25. And so that's even more troubling. Wow. What, yeah. what 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 MCC codes would those be? So it's I've, I'm not I don't want to say exactly because I'm not sure they're it's it's all, super uh, high risk. I'm presuming. You know, it's really not. Like one of them, for example, is digital good games. And I know a lot of my video game friends are in that space or in that MCC, and they're not high risk. Not really. Not if you understand them. Um, but when you look at the definition of that code, it's it's more geared toward like games of skill, which which is high risk. Mm-hmm. And so, and there's a number of new codes that are being put into that right now. Um, 
And I think that happens June 1st. Like I'm going to do a video and stuff on that soon. I'm trying to make absolutely sure I'm right on the codes. Sure. Um, because I can't get, it's been hard to get clear information around this. Uh, but it's scary. Like, you know, just that they can change that so fast. Um, but flip side, the good thing is, is we now have these new tools to stop it. So, so Scott, what do you, what are some of the difficulties or challenges that you would see payment processors and or merchants, you know, facing with this kind of shift to CE3 and what can be done about that? What are you guys doing about it with, with, uh, you know, your company? Yeah. Well, so, so the problem we had back whenever VMPI came out, you know, this is not a new problem. And really, if you think about it with almost any merchant tool, I would say that one of the number one or one of the top problems is always one, you know, if you're a fraud or payments person at your company, getting a budget, right? You need to get a budget to handle this stuff. And you need to get a budget to get your IT people, your engineers to work on it. Right. Because this requires real-time data access, right? And a lot of data. And it's a year of historical data for a good-sized company. Well, that's a lot of data. And to search it that quickly hmm. and on multiple, you don't know what they're going to send you, right? It could be, you could get ARN, but maybe you don't. It could get off code, but maybe you don't. You know, so it could be even a kind of a fuzzy match. So it's not simple. Um, and so, you know, that's one problem is just getting that budget, getting to, getting that data and access to it. And then once you get it and get, you got engineers to work on it, um, you know, and then just maintaining that system and keeping it running, you yeah. know, that those kind of things are huge issues. Hmm. Um, and with that, like I said before, I think you have to be fast. And it's so like VMPI was, was under one second response time. But that's from the time Visa calls you, starts the call. So that you've got to take into account the time from them to you, the time for you to search it, for you to transform it, for you to you know put it into the payload and send it back. Hmm. And then it's got to travel across the internet, which is fast, but considering we're talking only a second here to maybe search millions and millions of records, mm -hmm. it's yeah. difficult. Now they have said they they're going to raise they're raising it to two seconds. Yeah, but I, but I've heard rumors that that's not really the case. Like they're cutting them off quicker than that. And either way, two seconds is, is still very fast. That is you know, I know a lot of companies will, may have trouble with that. Um, and but it just happens, you know, nicely for me, I guess. That's my background. Like right. I started out in, in the engineering world, optimizing big databases mm -hmm. um, and building APIs. And so, you know, so I've taken on, taken on that again and I've built that up. And so what, what we're doing is, you know, we're going to provide the infrastructure for that where a merchant can choose to either allow us to host their data or we can call out to them via an API if they're fast enough. Right. Um, and then we handle the transformation and security and everything connecting and talking to Visa to exchange that data. And then also all the logic behind it. Because you know, if you think about it, there's a lot of different you know, logic you could apply to this and how to optimize around it. Like, you know, mm -hmm. maybe you don't always want to respond. Maybe you want to represent. Sure. Maybe you know, maybe you want alerts or not alerts. Maybe you want, you know, there's a lot of different places. And then also based on the data coming, what data do you want to send? You know, do you always want to send the same stuff? Or maybe you don't, hmm. you know, especially if, if, it's, if it's not necessarily going to qualify. Right. You know, you need to see, well, is, could it, if it doesn't, you still want to send data back because you could still win at that point. It's just not a rule. It's not hard and, hard and fast. It's just, you're giving this information to the issuer they see it in their CRM as they're talking to the consumer. Hmm. So I always tell merchants, think about it as an extension of your customer service. Mm -hmm. 
That's so interesting. Yeah. So I didn't even realize all the one second rule and all that. So basically that's, that's because if I'm understanding the context here, you're saying that, you know, a, a consumer is calling their, their bank, basically their issuing bank or their credit card company and saying, I don't think this transaction is legitimate. And so you're saying that the, in that moment, like within the context of this conversation, the issuing bank is able to put this information in to dispute this transaction. And CE3 is kind of intercepting this and saying, hey, if you can send us back this data within like a second, well, then we're going to keep this consumer on the phone for a second. And we're going to say, well, hold on a minute, consumer. You did buy from them. In fact, you had a transaction three months ago with them and you didn't dispute it, right? Like, is that what you're describing? Exactly. That's pretty cool. So that's, yeah, kind of, because you know, yeah. there's it's two pieces, really. I'm calling it all CE, but there's Order Insight, which has been out for a while, which is the the Verify version of VMPI, which whenever Visa bought Verify, they kind of merged those products. And then now Verify OI is taking, it's the next, it's it's step one. And then CE3 uses the same rails to pull that data. Hmm. And so, so yeah, like, you know, maybe your transaction does not qualify for CE3, but you still want to send as much data as you can to, because it's in real time. It's like, you know, you call somebody up and ask, Hey, what is this transaction? You don't want to wait 30 seconds, right? Right. It needs to be immediate. And so that's why you've got to have these very fast responses. Yeah. So, uh, so let's do this. So kind of, as we close this out, cause this is super interesting. I feel like I've already learned quite a few things today. So, you know, as we close this out, I definitely want you to share some information on where people can go to learn more about fraud deflect and what you're doing, but maybe along with that first, could you give us a little context of like, what's the timeline of when you're going to be looking for these kind of relationships. And then also what types of relationships are you talking about individual agents, like throwing a, a big merchant over the fence to you? Or are you talking about ISOs partnering with you? Like, what are you looking for? And then, and then where do they go to learn more? Sure. Um, well, you know, so you can go to uh, fraudreflect.com by the time this podcast comes out. Uh, we're launching that in a few days from today as we're recording this. Oh, great. Um, okay. but, yeah. But as, as far as what, what I'm looking for. So, We've, that's another thing I learned from building services in the past is that a really good way to, to distribute a product is to have a network of partners. And so we're building this from the ground up to work with, with ISOs, processors, agents, it doesn't matter, any kind of company. Hmm. And, um, you know, we'll basically, you know, make deals depending on volume and, you know, the rates we pay versus uh, what we charge to the, to the end users. Right. Um, but, you know, the system is, fully white labelable from day one. Um, it also can break down. So, you know, down to the mid level. And so you'll be able to pull up, you know, if you, you know, if you're, a, uh, if you resell it, it can be you know, under your brand name. And then you could have, you know, the companies that you sell it to under there. Mm -hmm. And then you can have reporting that rolls up to you, but then also reporting for each merchant. And then each merchant can have reporting down to the mid. Mm -hmm. um, so, so yeah, really any kind of, any kind of partner is very welcome. And it can be any size merchant. It, it takes no time at all to enroll enroll companies in these things. Right. And then we also, to make things even easier with the data, is uh, we have and we have even more integrations into gateways, into CRMs, right. uh, even into a merchant if they want us to do that, if they're if they have enough volume. Right. And so that website again is frauddeflect.com, right? And uh, they can go there and uh, learn more about it. Um, Scott, thank you so much for your time today. I love your expertise and all this. Uh, it's definitely not, um, you know, a high area of expertise for me. So I always enjoy having you on because I always learn something. Uh, so I really appreciate taking the time to share the insights with our audience and I uh, encourage them to head over to frauddeflect.com and check it out. 
This episode of the Merchant Sales Podcast is brought to you by CC Sales Pro Training. So if you want to learn more about that, we just put up a new website at ccsalespro.com. And when you go there, you can click a button right at the top to learn more about the training. We have several different options, um, but I want to talk about our ISO subscriptions. Uh, you know, this is an opportunity for you as an ISO to get your agents trained on the industry, especially as you're bringing new people into the business. But even as ongoing training, it's such an important, crucial part to have the agents go through training on a regular basis. Yes. And, you know, with our system, you white label it, put your logo up there. It's very cost effective. So head over to ccsalespro.com slash training and check out how you can get your agents, your team trained on this industry, how to understand statements, how to understand payment processing, how to sell dual pricing. We have a variety of courses and topics that are covered there. And you can learn more about that at ccsalespro.com slash training. This is Questions from the Field, brought to you by ccsalespro.com, the leader in merchant sales training and technology. If you're an individual merchant sales professional, visit ccsalespro.com forward slash training to get a free 14-day trial of our all-access pass. If you manage a team of merchant sales professionals, visit ccsalespro.com forward slash ISO to learn how we can help you grow. And now, here is Questions from the Field, with James Shepard. So Patty, today I want to talk about the uh, race to vertical SaaS solutions. Um, you know, when we think about the payment processing industry, especially from a sales perspective, Patty, I, I think of it uh, as a series of races, <laughs> you know. Um, mm -hmm. There was the race to payment acceptance was the first right. race, you know, just like right. business owners, you know, this is all the, the Zon juniors, you know, this is like, we got to get everybody to take these cards. You know, this is, there was this race and it was like, the winner is going to be the one that gets the most Zon juniors placed. You know, that was the winner. Right. Right. Um, right. Right. You know, then it became this race to the bottom and, you know, you had the, you know, it was, it was selling for 7%, you know, whatever. And it raced to the bottom. Then it was like, okay, now we're going to do race to other technology solutions and, you know, very generalized technology solutions, but you know, a little bit better, you know, then it was the race for EMV, uh, you know, right. chip card and all that, right? And you got to be EMV compliant. That's the race. Then it was the race to dual pricing and cash discounting mm -hmm. and whatever. And it was like, oh, wait a minute, everybody, nobody, we don't want them paying for processing anymore. There's this race. And what's interesting about all of those races is that um, none of those races really had any particularly high barrier to entry for the next race. You know what I mean? It was kind of like, sure. well, we all raced out there and everybody placed all these Zon Juniors, but, but, you know, then comes along the Verifone line of terminals and, and, you know, and Hypercom, you know what I mean? Um, right, right. You know, uh, dual pricing, cash discounting. It's like, well, yeah, that's, that's great. And the idea is, you know, people are definitely not going to want to pay processing fees if they're already on one of these programs. But if you could offer a similar pricing with a different solution or a different value, then that's not that high of a barrier. I think this right. this next race, the one that we're in now, we're at the we're still towards the beginning of the race, and it's the race to vertical SaaS uh, solutions or implementations. And this is a race that is so real, and it's happening so quickly. It's really interesting as I talk to um, payment processors and agents that I would say agents tend to have a much more realistic grasp of the of this race than the executives I talk to, to be honest. Um, oh, that's interesting. Yeah, most of them, it's almost like, oh, yeah, this is an interesting trend. And it's like, no, it's not a trend. It's like the only thing that matters. Um, and, mm -hmm. and that what it mm -hmm. is, is that every business out there 
that does not have a payment integration with a software solution that is specifically designed for their business type with the integrations they need, with the features that they want, et cetera, et cetera, right? Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. They will have that at some time in the next decade. And so there's this race going on right now to say, we need to get every business a specific solution for their business that that works for them that has payments integrated into it. And I'll be honest, I know I'll, I'll probably make a few, you know, I always like to make a few people upset. Otherwise, I feel like I'm not saying anything interesting. But um, even some of these solutions, you know, I'll, I'll call out, a, a you know, maybe a Clover and things like that. You know, even some of those solutions, it's like, well, yeah, but they have this app that, you know, right in the in the Clover marketplace. Right, right. That and makes it, it a little cooler. A little cooler. And it's like, well, yes, okay, that could be good. But here's the problem. When you have an entire technology company that is focused on one vertical, right? What they can do for that vertical is just incredible, you know, right. because it's not just about the technology itself or the feature list, you know, it's mm -hmm. also, like I said, about the integrations. And, you know, are they integrated with, the, you know, I was thinking about, um, you know, uh, some different companies where like one company I know that that does a thing for um, C stores and things like that. And, you know, they have a literally have a, an integration with the company that that refunds coupon discounts that are used at these stores. So when business yeah, owners accept yeah. a coupon for a 20 percent discount, they get that money the next day. Right. Mm -hmm. Well, mm -hmm. I don't care yeah. what your Clover app does. When somebody comes in and says, you're going to get that I coupon money you. back, right? Or a direct integration with the vendor to reorder their inventory automatically at a discounted rate because of the, the added efficiencies, right? So my mm -hmm. point being, as an agent, so I want to talk about agents and, and ISOs here and, and even the higher level acquirers and processors. For the agents, um, I would really, really encourage you to start dabbling in this. And the way you do that is, Pick one vertical that you really like. Don't be afraid to go outside of your normal genre, right? Like a, a different, maybe a card not present vertical that you normally wouldn't go after or something like that. But go after a different vertical and go after that vertical uh, by finding a solution that has integrated payments, right? Negotiating a deal with them to either you do the processing, they have integrated through the uh, gateway, or um, they pay you the residual, but you have, you have to make sure your agreement is really rock solid. Um, and then go out and sell those that one business type. But you you have to like, it's like the reason it's such a, a, a tricky one, Patty, is that it's so much more than just merchant sales. You know, it's right. content right. marketing and it's expertise and it's trade organizations and it's these new things. But I don't find these things to be necessarily like incredibly difficult or complicated it's just something different and you just have to learn that. But I think the, well, I there's, just a, there's a clear symmetry, don't you think? I mean, between merchant services and these other services. I mean, of course. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, I was just having an interesting conversation with somebody on the consulting side, right before we started this recording. And, you know, his question to me was uh, in 10, 15 years, are there still going to be merchant services agents like there are today? And I said, well, I definitely think there'll be a lot of very successful 1099 contractors who sell payment processing. But I said, I think the most successful ones are going to be those that have picked three or four verticals, maybe even just one in some cases, depending on the vertical. And then they've gone all in on that vertical. 
and they built it out because what's going to happen is when you're a generalist, and this is like this is like economics 101, business 101, you know, this goes back to Adam Smith and division of labor. Like when you when you are competing as a generalist and you have companies mm-hmm. at scale who are verticals who are more specific than you are, right? You lose. Like right. <laughs> you know, I mean, unless there's some really significant cost advantage that you have as the at scale provider, but that's just not the case in our industry. You know, the payment processing, it's not a significant, it's, it's already so commoditized that there's, it's not like, well, we service hundreds of different verticals. So we have a big cost advantage over the company that services one. No, you don't. So as a result, you're going to lose to that other company that's going after that one vertical. And so, you know, in a market where there's very low barriers to entry, and where there's all this money to be made, you know, it's going to be very, very, very challenging. And there's this race. And so I just really want to talk about it today. The agent for the ISO, you know, you know what to do. You need to go acquire an ISV, build an ISV, whatever. And then Mm -hmm. you need to bring that to your agent base as a separate offer from the everything else that you do and say, we're going to dedicate a team of four people to this little vertical. And we're going to have this one vertical and we're going to become, you know, among, we have these other general solutions we offer, but separate from that, we're going to go directly after this one vertical and dominate that. And you got, then you go get another one, you know, like that's what you do. This is a race and it's a land grab opportunity. And I think our industry is frankly doing a very poor job at grabbing this land. It's almost like we're grabbing this middle ground. It's like the whole industry right now is in this, they think they're in this land grab of all these people with a standalone terminal, we can give them a general system that's a little bit better. Right. Just why? Yeah, like why? Because like three years from now, they're going to be doing a more specific solution. Like you're grabbing the wrong land. They're already ready to embrace the vertical specific solution that is exactly built for them. Why are you selling them the middle ground? So you know, and the reason is very simple. It's because our industry has not embraced technology. They've embraced technology partnership, but they have not embraced right. technology. And so right. the ISOs and agents have to actually embrace the technology itself. So anyway, that race is going on. If you're an acquirer and, you know, you need to be thinking about how you're empowering ISB relationships. And it's interesting, Patty, those organizations do get it. Yeah. The big acquirers, you know, the agents a lot of times are like, man, I feel like I'm kind of the redheaded stepchild. I'm, I'm a number, you know, these big companies don't seem to care about the agent anymore. And you're largely correct. I mean, they're shifting their focus to ISB partnerships. Why? Because there's a race. Right. And they don't think the agents and ISOs, the small ISOs are doing a good job of, they're not even in the race. They're like running around the, in the middle of the field, you know, while people, they're, they're like playing Frisbee in the middle of the field. Right, I was just gonna say, going to say, you know, it's like, hacky sack while everybody else is playing yeah. golf. And it's like, hey, there's a race going on. And the race is, there are X number of merchants who do not have a vertical specific software solution with payments integration today. And those merchants will have one in 10 years. That's the race. So be aware there's a race going on and it might be time for you to get your running shoes on, stretch a little bit, maybe get up to that starting line and and see if you could uh, see if you could run a couple laps. (laughs) So there you go. There's your tip for the day. This is the insider's report with Patty Murphy brought to you by the green sheet. For nearly 40 years, The Green Sheet has been the go-to source for news, analysis, and educational tools that empower and connect payments professionals. If you're not reading The Green Sheet already, check it out on the web today at www.greensheet.com. Well, James, you know, as a follow-on to our interview with Scott, I thought uh, I'd report on 
Um, the hot seat that uh, one chargeback mitigation firm has found itself in. Okay. Um, the Federal Trade Commission, as well as the Florida Attorney General's Office, are alleging that uh, chargebacks 911, its owners, Gary Cardone and Monica Eaton Cardone, took advantage of consumers that were hit with fraudulent charges, charges to the benefit of scammers. It also alleged the company ignored numerous red flags that it was using faulty information to help these merchants successfully dispute chargebacks. The FTC and the uh, Florida AG also took issue with a company program called VAP for value-added promotions. VAP encouraged merchants with high chargeback rates to run numerous small-dollar transactions using prepaid cards so they could boost their total transaction numbers and that way lower their chargeback rates. Hmm. Crafty these Americans, aren't they? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and and actually, full disclosure, of course, uh, uh, we had Mr. Cardone on the uh, yes, podcast. We did. Yes, uh, we I did. When that was, it was a long time ago. It's been a couple um, of years at least, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, so in a complaint filed on April 12th in U.S. District Court for the Middle District of Florida, FTC lawyers in the Florida AG noted that Chargebacks 911 counted as clients several companies that have been sued by the Federal Trade Commission for deceiving consumers. These included a company called Apex Capital, F9 Advertising, and AH Media. Hmm. And apparently, Chargebacks 911 had been told about at least one action involving Apex. Uh, Companies of all three companies, uh, customers of all three companies that complained that they were being charged for ongoing subscriptions that they didn't recall right. signing up for. Right. Common problem we all know about, right? Right. right. Um, according to the complaint, Chargebacks 911 regularly sent screenshots to card issuers on behalf of its clients that clearly disclosed the nature of recurring subscription payments, but all too often, the screenshots didn't match up with what the with the actual product pages that the consumers ordered from. Hmm. So the FTC and the state have alleged that uh, the company Cardone and Eaton Cardone are violating the FTC Act and the Florida Unfair and Deceptive Trade Practices Act. They are um, asking the court to impose a permanent injunction against the alleged illegal activities, as well as civil penalties and compensation for affected consumers. Hmm. Florida and the FTC are requesting simple penalties of up to 25000 for each violation. Wow. Um, Gary Cardone has since stepped down as CEO of Chargeback 911, with his wife, Monica Eaton Cardone, taking over. Uh, the company did issue a statement asserting that the accusations put forth by the FTC and the Florida AG are inaccurate and promised a vigorous defense. The uh, company also argued that the FTC and the state AG don't understand how companies like Chargebacks 911 operate. And if successful, the government's actions could have adverse and industry-wide consequences for any software as a service provider, hmm. which I thought was an interesting argument. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. It'll be very interesting to see how it plays out. Of course, it's interesting too because, of course, our our audience would know that uh, 
uh, you know, Grant Cardone, of course, is very, very famous. And of course, Gary is his, uh, his brother, actually his twin right. brother. Um, and, uh, so they would kind of know that, that connection point, but yeah, I mean, uh, we had him on the podcast, talked about what he was doing mm-hmm. and, um, you know, uh, these things were not brought up in the podcast interview as I remember, but, um, it'd be very interesting to see how this all plays out. It does have, it does have implications. Cause I think, I think the larger the question is how far can one of these companies go in, in terms of, you know, trying to, uh, keep chargebacks out from, you know, off of their clients. It's like, well, how far can they really go in this? And, and where is it? You know, it's one thing to say there's a legitimate transaction and we want to prove it's legitimate. There's another thing in saying there's an illegitimate transaction and we want to make people think it was legitimate. Right. And that's where this seems to have come down. Yeah. Interesting stuff, Patty. Well, I'm sure we'll uh, hear more about that as time goes on. Thank you for listening to the Merchant Sales Podcast. Whether you are an industry veteran, processing executive, or just trying to learn about the payment space, we appreciate your time. The Merchant Sales Podcast is a joint production of Greensheet.com and CCSalesPro.com, and we hope you will tune in next week for more information and tips on building your merchant services business.